Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. Here we are with episode 48, and this time we're going to talk about van alternatives like school buses and ambulances, and yes, even RVs. We're also going to talk about a great trick involving Velcro that I just learned on the internet, a tale from the road involving an elephant, and a place to visit that kind of doesn't exist. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Thanks for being here. I am rather consumed with real estate right now and lawyers. And man, I am so looking forward to just getting back into being completely obsessed with vans. And I'm actually still pursuing the idea of buying a new van for next year. And part of me is like, well... Why a van? You know, the, vans are hard to find right now. They're they're super popular. They're going for a premium. What if I got something other than a van? You know, what if I got an ambulance or a school bus? Or what if I just got an RV? Well, here are some reasons to do those things or not to do them. Let's talk about some pros and cons of alternatives to vans. Now, we're going to ignore cars and SUVs for a moment here because they're kind of a separate topic, and uh, there's nothing wrong with them, but we're going to ignore them. We're also going to ignore trailers, because hey, it's a 30-minute podcast, I basically have 10 minutes to do the opening segment, and I've already wasted a minute of it explaining that. So let's jump right in. First, school buses, known as schoolies in the community, are a perfectly reasonable thing to travel in and live in. Lots of people are doing it. They tend to be used mostly by full-timers. These are not your typical weekend warrior vehicles. I mean, of course, you can use it any way you want, but a lot of folks, especially folks with families, gravitate towards school buses or old transit buses or even double-decker buses, and there's one family traveling in an articulated double-decker bus (laughs) that used to be a a tour shuttle, and you can find them on YouTube. I'll try to put a link in the show notes. But you get a lot in a school bus. There's a lot of reasons to consider this. First off, they're solidly built. All buses, school buses included, have to meet more rigorous safety standards than than automobiles, especially when compared to an RV. School buses nowadays, if they've been made in the last 20 years, have diesel engines. Those engines are meant to last a very long time. So even if it has two or 300,000 miles on it, that really isn't a deterrent. The engine is going to last fine. There's obviously more space. I mean, a typical high school school bus, you know, the yellow cheese box school bus, is made to fit 72 people or so. You and your family or just you and your partner are going to fit in there just fine. They have excellent ground clearance because these things, they're trucks. They're built up higher off the ground. And because they have to have a beefier suspension to hold all that weight, they just tend to ride higher. And, of course, they can hold a lot of weight. 72 people weigh a lot, a lot more than the stuff you're going to put in there. And the price is often pretty good because... There isn't that much of a market for used school buses. I mean, sure, you've got churches that buy them from time to time, but other than that, the only market is us, people who want to convert them into things. Now, in some parts of the country, they're used as hay wagons and things like that, but generally, a used school bus is going to go to somebody who wants to convert it into a home. Now, there are different types of school buses, and we could spend a lot of time talking about this. Long buses and short buses 
with the short school buses being the most common and the most sought after. By the way, pro tip, if you're looking for a small school bus or like an airport shuttle, which is basically the same thing, you're going to find most of them in places where there's a lot of tourist activity. So Las Vegas, Atlanta, Orlando, places like that. That all said, what about cons? Well, one big con right off the bat is they have this front door that's often weird. They, you know, it's that flappy front door you find on school buses, and that's a pain to deal with. You don't really want to live with that as your door. First off, it's not secure. Even if it's locked, and there is a way to lock them, they can be pried open. And second, they let air and water through. I mean, they're just there to kind of prevent the wind from getting in there. That's really all they do. There's a couple of ways to deal with them. Some people simply remove them and put in a household door. But one clever idea I have seen is that people will leave that door as is, but build a secure door behind the driver's seat so that the front of the vehicle is kind of its own separate space that's left as is, but the back is what they build out. So like with everything, there are solutions for all these cons. Another con is that the driver's area has few creature comforts. For one thing, you're going to be sitting by yourself in most cases. There's no passenger seat up there. The other thing is that you're not going to have all the fun stuff up there. You're going to have very mechanical knobs. There may not even be a radio. And in some older buses, there won't even be a shoulder belt because for a long time, shoulder belts were only required in passenger vehicles and trucks just needed a lap belt. So be aware of that. Also, if they have air brakes especially, you might need a special license to drive them. You'll have to look into that. And of course, you have to worry about parking the thing. These vehicles are wide and awkward with big turning radiuses and almost impossible to parallel park in the city. That's kind of obvious, but I need to mention it. So, excellent option. Be aware that there are cons that go with it. And of course, with all of these things we're talking about, zero stealth factor. You are not going to be doing much stealth in any kind of a school bus. Okay, let's go to the next one. Ambulances. I am particularly attracted to ambulances because I like the way they're built. I like how solid they are. I like how the cabinets look like they're supposed to be there. They're not like, oh, I don't know, Ikea cabinets that someone just stuck in the back of their van. I mean, who would do such a thing? I love it. They're already partially built for you. I mean, a lot of the stuff's already there. You've already got lights in the ceilings, you've got windows, you've even got a bed of sorts in most cases, and lots of cabinets. And they even come with stuff like generators and inverters, so that can be nice. But let me go back a step here. There's three types of ambulances, just like there are in RVs. There's type 1, type 2, and type 3. Now, a type 1 ambulance is an ambulance that's a box built on a pickup truck or some kind of larger truck. A type 2 is just a van, like a Class B RV, that has been turned into an ambulance. And a type 3 is a van cutaway, like a Class B RV. You got that? It doesn't really matter. The Class 1 and Class 3 ambulances have a box in the back because it's square, the walls are at right angles to the floor, and that is a super helpful thing in building out. But here are the cons. Let's say you get an ambulance that has 150,000 miles on it, and you might think, oh, that's not so bad, it's a diesel. Miles is not how you measure wear on an ambulance. You measure wear in hours because an ambulance will typically turn on and then stay running until it needs fuel. 
They just leave them on all the time because they need the engine to do things such as power the back. They often have bigger alternators in them, which is good, but that means that the engine has been running forever. So if you have a, a, an ambulance with 150,000 miles on it, the number of engine hours it has might be closer to 750,000 miles. So be aware of that. Don't get tricked into a low mileage ambulance because that engine has seen some stuff. Also, newer ones, newer ambulances that have lower miles that are serviceable as an ambulance are quite pricey. There is a steep drop-off at which point, like, no ambulance company would actually use this ambulance anymore. Then the price drops a lot. But if it's like a three-year-old ambulance, it's going to be probably not worth doing because for that amount of money, you could get a much more appropriate rig for yourself. And you must have a do-it-yourself personality because you're not going to find anybody who's going to be willing to work on this thing. You may even have trouble finding people being willing to work under the hood because there are so many modifications to ambulances, including under the hood, that a lot of mechanics are just like, I'm not going to deal with this. One of the biggest frustrations I see in the ambulance Facebook groups, for example, is wires that people don't know where they go. How do they get the switch to work? These things are super complicated and they're so solidly built that removing that stuff can be a real pain in the butt. The cabinets are almost impossible to remove and all that wiring, you're afraid to remove it because what if it's something you need? So I like ambulances. I would love to consider having an ambulance someday, but definitely understand that even though it's partially built, it's a project. Before we get into RVs, I want to mention another one. Step vans, they're called. These are bread vans or taco trucks. That square-shaped van that delivery companies use, but not UPS because UPS never sells their vehicles. So like an old FedEx truck, for example. These things can be awesome because they have all the pros of everything I just mentioned you can find in a step van. They have long life engines, they are square shape, easy to build on, and they're often made of aluminum, which the entire body, which means you're not going to have any rust problems. Now that I've said that, why doesn't everyone just buy a step fan? Well, the con with step fans is that they are terrible on the highway. They are city vehicles. They're meant to go 35, 40 miles an hour. You get one of these things on the highway and it's incredibly loud. It's difficult to keep it going straight. I mean, I've done this, obviously. I've, I've been a delivery driver. I, I know what it's like to drive these things. They're great in the city. But if you're going to do a lot of highway miles, these are not the best vehicle. Okay, and that takes us to RVs. Why not just buy the vehicle designed to do what you want to do? I mean, it's a basic question you have to wrestle with. You want to go sleep in your vehicle? Well, just get a vehicle designed for that. Here are the pros for an RV. I mean, they're pretty obvious. One, it's ready to go. You buy an RV, you're good. Go. Whoosh, no building, you are done. And they can be cheap. I say can be. A Class B RV, which is a van that is built out into an RV, those are not cheap. They are demanding the highest premium of anything right now. But a Class C RV, that is an RV that has a van in front and a big box in the back, those can be dirt cheap. Now, all RVs are demanding a premium right now. With COVID and everything, people have really embraced the RVing movement. But a Class C RV can be your cheapest way to get a fully built-out vehicle that's ready to go. There's support available for RVs. There are places that specialize in RVs. So if you need help and you're not willing to do it yourself, you can find somebody to work on it. And they are engineered 
to be used as you're going to use it. That said, they're also poorly built in many cases. A new RV and a used RV have one thing in common. They're full of things that don't work. I know this. I was an RV tech. You are always fixing things in RVs, and a lot of times those things that you're fixing are poor wall constructions, poorly applied insulation, poor plumbing fixtures. I mean, honestly, unless you're going to get a top-end RV, they're just not that well built all the time. And because you didn't build it, you've got to figure out what they did and then fix it. Also, they don't really hold their value. I mean, you might think I'm contradicting myself because right now there's an uptick, but that is not the general trend. The general trend is that RVs will lose value quickly, unlike self-built camper vans, which tend to actually keep their value or, depending on how you build it out, can actually be worth much more after you build it. And when you buy an RV, you get what it is. They're not necessarily the way you want it. Maybe you want a composting toilet and it comes with a black tank. Well, you've got to deal with removing all of that. Whereas if you're starting with a self-build, you wouldn't. And I'm going to say it, they don't have any coolness factor. Now, of course, that's not true. In the RV community, they have a coolness factor. But there is a coolness associated with van life that is completely absent if you have an RV. I don't really care about this, but I'm going to point it out. There's a corollary to that, though, is RVs have less stigma if you're going to go to campgrounds. You will get kicked out of a campground in a camper van that you've built yourself much more often than you will in an RV. Although, that said, a lot of the fancy parks are kicking out any RVs that are older than 10 years. That's a whole debate. Whatever. Everything I've talked about is a good option. There are pros and cons to everything. I invite you to explore all of them and find just the right niche for you. Personally, I am still attracted to ambulances, although the cons have me really worried. My next thing that I buy, given everything I do, is probably going to be another van. Tech Talk, a Velcro trick. Like many folks, when I built up my van, I used Velcro in certain places. For example, I had some of those drawers that are kind of boxes that fold up that fit in cubbies, and they would slide out as I drove, so I put Velcro on the back, and it was easy for me to push it in and take it out, and it held fine. And that worked great, until it got hot, and then the Velcro adhesive started to melt, and those boxes became this gooey, sticky mess that is horrible. And I'm sure some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. There's a trick for this. Don't buy the self-adhesive Velcro. Buy the sew-on Velcro that has no adhesive and attach it either with staples or, and I haven't tried this out, but I have it on good authority that this works well, shoe goo. Because shoe goo is an adhesive that will hold that in place very firmly, but it won't melt. So I'm a big fan of Velcro for a lot of places in the RV, but the melting problem has been a big deal. I am going to try out the Shugu thing going forward, and if it works, I'll report back. And if it doesn't work, I'll report back, because that's how I am. Tales from the road. Okay, this is a little bit of a strange tale. This tale does not involve any vehicles in any traditional sense, but it does involve travel. So I'm going to count it, and if you don't want to, that's okay. I can take my lumps there. In my old life, what I consider my normal life, I take people around the world on trips. 
And one of the trips we did in 2016 was we went to Africa. And we spent a lot of time in South Africa, and we visited other countries too, like Zambia and Zimbabwe and Botswana. Obviously, there's lots of stories to tell here. But this one story is a little scary. We were staying near Victoria Falls, which is, you know, the most touristy place in Zambia. And it was possible to walk across the bridge at Victoria Falls and go to another country. You could walk from Zambia to Zimbabwe. So we decided to do that because, hey, another country, and not only that, another Z country, because how hard is it to get the Z countries in your passport? And so we walked across and had a little bit of an adventure at the border, which was just fun, nothing bad. Uh, Watched monkeys tearing pieces of people's cars off, which was entertaining. But we had heard that there was a bar that overlooked the river gorge in Zimbabwe right over the bridge. And that was our goal. Now, I was the group leader, so everyone's following me like I know what I'm doing. And, well, I can certainly act like I know where I'm going, but honestly, I didn't have clue one where this bar was other than over the bridge. So we got over the bridge, and we found a roadside stand, and we said, hey, where's the bar? And they said, go down this dirt trail. And I thought to myself, dirt trails may lead places, but, you know, if it's a bar, it's going to need a road, right? Like, how are they getting the beer and stuff? But okay, we're in Africa. We're going to have an adventure. And so we head down this trail, and I can see that we're kind of following along the river, and there's something ahead of us that might be the bar. And it's all right, we're going. I mean, what can happen? We're walking through the bush in Africa. We run into these folks who are coming towards us a little bit more quickly than we were walking. And uh, we strike up a little bit of a chat and we find out that they're Canadians. And they warned us that there's an angry elephant on the path. And, okay, okay, it's Africa. But honestly, we're not like out in the bush bush of Africa. We're at the border of two African countries. This is not exactly city, but this is a populated place we're in, right? There's people here. We're not all alone out in the bushes. We walked here from the capital of Zambia. And so we're like, yeah, yeah, whatever. They probably just saw an elephant. And that isn't an unusual thing. So we walk a little bit on, and there's this giant bull elephant in the bushes trumpeting at us, raising its trunk in the air, stomping the ground, and it's maybe 20 yards from us. Now, I have run into wildlife before, This is the kind of wildlife that will kill you in a heartbeat if it feels like it, and it was kind of indicating that it felt like it. So what did we do? Well, I don't actually know the protocol from backing off from an angry elephant. I mean, some animals you're supposed to make yourself look big and scare them. Other animals you're supposed to back away slowly or maybe play dead. What about an elephant? It turns out that elephants, there's not a hell of a lot you can do because they're faster than you and you can't scare them. And if you curl up into a little ball, they'll just squash you flat. So having done that math in about a millisecond, I decided the reasonable thing to do was continue on to the bar. And so mustering up every bit of bravado and false courage that I could manage, I told the group, it's fine. It's an elephant. We'll just leave it alone. It'll leave us alone. Because, honestly, what other choice did I have? (laughs) And we did. We walked on, and the elephant was very angry with us, but didn't bother us. And we made it to the bar, 
and had our drink on the edge of this beautiful gorge, an absolutely amazing experience, and then we took a taxi back. Product review. One of the biggest frustrations of our modern life is that we are completely attached to our cell phones, but when we get in the car, there's no good place to put the thing. We haven't figured this problem out yet. Cars got 16 cup holders, but no dedicated phone holder. Or if it does, it's stupid like the ones they put on the doors and the transits. Or it doesn't fit your phone because phones have gotten a heck of a lot bigger in the last five years. So I have tried all different ways of doing this. And my favorite, the one I'm going to share with you, is the magnetic system. I'll have a link in the show notes to make sure you know what I'm talking about, but there's a bunch of them. I'm not recommending one over the others. But the idea is this. You put a strong magnet on your dashboard somewhere. Now, it can be drilled into the dashboard, which is what I did, or they have them that mount to vents. They have them that fit in cup holders. They have suction cup ones, however you want to attach it. But the concept is that there's a metal plate on the back of your phone, and you just stick your phone on there. And it's strong enough to hold your phone in place. And what I have found after using one of these for a couple of years is that, yes, it is. It's strong enough to hold your phone in place and it's super convenient. It's easy to put your phone up. It doesn't fall off while you're driving, except in extreme cases. And it's flexible. They bend, you can mount them in such ways that you can rotate your phone horizontal if you want. And they're travel size. I have one in my travel bag that I bring with me wherever I go. So if I have a rental car, I can just stick it in the vent and I have my phone right there. Now there are a couple of cons with these things. One is you have to have this metal plate attached to your phone somewhere, either on the outside of your case or on the phone itself. I've done both, both work, but if you attach it to your case, you have to make sure it's the right kind of case. It has to be a flat case. And if the case is loose or of a pliable plastic, it can kind of deform a bit, and that's not cool. On one of my phones, I was able to just put a plate in between the case and the phone, and that worked well, because it was a large plate. Most of the time, you're going to give up the ability to wirelessly charge your phone if you do this, because the metal plate blocks the wireless charging coils in the phone. There is a system they make that has a hole that lets you do both. But what I have found is that wireless charging sounds great, but ultimately isn't that useful. Because wireless charging is much, much slower than regular charging. And if you use CarPlay like I do, well, you're going to have to plug it in anyway in most cases. So check out the magnet systems. And I know there's other systems, but hey, it's what I've used and I've driven a lot of miles. A place to visit. Again, this one is a stretch for van life, but heck, I just told the elephant story. And you could do this in a van if you wanted to. So, (laughs) Victoria Falls, famous tall falls, amazing. When you go to Zambia and Zimbabwe, which you should at some point in your life, take a helicopter ride over the falls. You must do this. There's a requirement. And you'll see there's this massive bridge across the river, which in and of itself is amazing, and you walk or drive across it to get from Zambia to Zimbabwe or vice versa. As you're walking across, there are all types of merchants trying to sell you hand-carved African animals and things like that. And, you know, being Americans and being fairly wealthy, I 
wanted the group to kind of support them. And so I would make a big deal of them and, and try to, you know, say, hey, guys, this guy's selling elephants. Let's go talk to him. You know, that kind of a thing. Within reason. I mean, after a while, it gets to be a little bit pushy and you just want to enjoy the view and you've got three guys trying to sell you something. As you're walking across the bridge, you see a sign that says, Leaving Zambia. And then a few feet away, there's a sign that says, Entering Zimbabwe. But in between the signs, where are you? What country are you in? It's like the border there isn't infinitely thin. It's several feet wide. So you can literally stand on it. And honestly, I don't know what country you're in. But there's a guy there who sells things. In fact, I have a, a wooden pumba that he sold me, although it sure doesn't look like one. And yes, a pumba is a warthog in Swahili. I asked him about this. I said, hey, you're standing between the two signs. What country are you in? And he said, clearly, sir, I am in Zimzam. In fact, I am the president of Zimzam. And now all of our friends who were on this trip in 2016 joke about the president of Zimzam and how we met him. In fact, we had an audience with him. And it's little moments like that that make travel so special. So folks, if you are ever in Zimbabwe or Zambia, go ahead and visit Zimzam. Have your picture taken there. Relish that moment of uncertainty. And if the president is there, give him my regards. Okay, resource recommendation. People talk about AAA and van life. Not a bad idea to have AAA. They can help you out in many cases. There are times where they can't help you out. If you're off the road in Death Valley and you're stuck, AAA is not going to help you. But I want to point out a service that AAA does that they've done for years that doesn't get enough attention, and that is their free map, free guidebook, and free triptych service. Now, AAA is trying to get you to do all this stuff online uh, because obviously it saves them a ton of money. But I'm going to push back against it and say, you folks, you, if you have a AAA membership, should take total advantage of this feature. Basically, you go online and you say, hey, AAA, I want these maps. And the maps are whole countries or regional or in some cases city, depending on the city. And you get a very well done paper map and you can get the guidebook. And look, we all live with electronic stuff. We're all doing GPSs all the time. But one thing a GPS can't do is fold out into a giant picture of your route. This is why I highly recommend you look at a map because you are going to learn things and see things and understand your journey more from the map. And AAA has some great maps. They also have triptychs. Now, this is less useful today, but can be kind of fun. The triptych is a flip over book that shows you your route. Now, in the old days before GPS, you would say, hey, AAA, I want to drive to Florida from Boston, Massachusetts. How do I do that? And they would put together a book that would show you the entire route, what exits you're taking, what restaurants are there, all kinds of stuff. And actually, they still do it. And yes, you can do it online to get the electronic version. But if you knew exactly where you were going and wanted to take a leisurely trip and, and be able to follow along in the book, yes, you can still get triptychs. So, AAA, not just for towing you anymore, they, well, or ever, they're also a great place to get maps. Q&A, I've been seeing this question so much lately, and I understand it, and I'm going to answer it the best I can. And the question is, how much solar is enough to do X? 
And X is usually something like power air conditioning or cook or something like that. Well, the answer is solar doesn't really do that. It's not how it works. Solar recharges your batteries. That's what it does. Solar does not directly power things in your van. People might see, oh, you can get a solar-powered battery charger, so the solar is charging your battery. Well, yes, solar power comes through some sort of a controller that modulates the power and charges the battery, and that's all it does. So if you're asking questions like, how much solar do you need to do something, you have to back up and say, how much battery capacity do I need to do this? And then ask the second question, how am I going to recharge the battery? And that's where the solar comes in. And all that comes down to math. How many watts are you going to use? How many watts can your solar panels provide to recharge your batteries? And how much time do you have to do it? Those are the questions you need to ask. But to actually answer the question, there is a general rule of thumb. You want your solar wattage to be the same as the number of amp hours that your batteries are storing, assuming you have AGM batteries or something similar. So if you have 100 amp hours of battery, get 100 watts of solar. So if you're stuck in this loop of asking yourself how much solar, remember, solar is only to charge your batteries. There are other ways to charge your batteries, and solar is not the best way to charge your batteries unless you're going to be sitting for a long time or you just want something supplemental. Thank you very much for listening. We're approaching 20,000 downloads, which might be a small number, but for me, it's a big number, and thank you for being part of it. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. You can find us at builttogo.com. That's two Ts, not three, not one. And we have a Facebook group, Built to Go, a Facebook group. Until next time, remember what G.K. Chesterton said. The whole object of travel is not to set foot on foreign land. It is at last to set foot on one's own country as a foreign land. <laughs>